0: Hello, and welcome back to the Monroe Church of Christ Bible study on the book of Ephesians. Uh, We're so glad that you could be with us, and we're going to press forward in this, our second lesson on this beautiful letter. We talked last time about this letter was probably fairly common in the early church. It looks like it may have been written to a bunch of different places because we have early manuscripts that do not contain in in the first verse there uh, the specificity that this was to the church at Ephesus. It was left blank as though it was a form letter that people would fill in, whoever they were sending it to. That may have been the case, but we do know that it was received by the church at Ephesus, and we do know that Paul was at least in some part the author of it, uh, or at least it came from those who learned from Paul and who who were disciples of his. So we trust very much in the inspiration of the word. And we trust very much in in uh, the teachings of this beautiful, beautiful letter. And it's all about our identity. It's all about who we are. And so that we got to keep asking ourselves that question as we read this. How does this inform me about who I am? How does this teach me to better understand what I'm about? Uh, an identity crisis can produce devastating results. When we don't know who we are, it can drive a lot of traumatic and damaging things in our life. And the same is true spiritually. And Paul is writing to say, this is who you are, and this is how you will live because of it. So we got it partway through chapter 1 where he talks about us being children of God. He talks about the grace that was bestowed upon us, the mystery that we have been, has been revealed to us about salvation and about our inheritance and being heirs. So let's continue in verse 15. Uh, Paul gives some specific words here to the the audience. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him. In other words, I'm praying for you all the time. I've heard about your faith and I pray for you so that God will continue to reveal some things to you. Now, what would that be? Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul says, look, here's who we are. And I'm going to tell you some things about who you are. And my prayer is that your eyes will be open for you to truly, fully, and completely grasp what that is. What he's praying for is that they will understand and have their hearts open to what he's about to teach them. About their identity and about who they are. Now, he goes on in some more detail here uh, about this. Uh, And, uh, let's see, yes, these, this is halfway through verse 19, "...these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. In other words, this is rooted, your identity is rooted in Jesus Christ and the power of God and the fact that he rules over all things, not only now, but for all eternity. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fits all in all. So as Paul discusses the concept of Christian identity and who we are and what we are, he says, um, what we are, are children of God, people who have been saved by grace, people who uh, have inherited, we are heirs, we've inherited this glory, and I'm, I hear about your faith, and I want to strengthen your faith, and I want to pray that you will be enlightened as to what the nature of your identity is. And here, Paul says, is a summary you're children of God and you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ and the powerful uh, position of Christ as head over all things uh, means something for your identity and who you are. A couple of things to note here. The, the concept of our identity, which is the broader picture of the, of the letter, rests very much on the idea that Christ is the head of the church. The church is in subjection to Christ and Christ is the head. We are the body. He is the head. And we're going to talk about submission and subjection in, in future lessons because I think sometimes we get that a little bit misdefined and we think of that as um, something more along the lines of like an oppressive relationship and it's not that at all. So we're going to talk about that. So I, I just want to make you aware we're coming back to it. So just wait. But in the meantime, I want to point out something else because he he he's making the point that You are children of God, your identity matters, it will inform how you live and the choices you make and how you treat one another, and being children of God means that you were saved by God through Christ and Christ is the head of the church. Uh, And he uses the word church here. Well, the word Paul actually used was ekklesia. It's Greek, uh, and that word in translations into more common languages from the Greek like Latin and English took that word and translated it as church. That's not actually the correct word, though it's the word we use. And here's why that word was used that way. Um, Ekklesia means a gathered people or a called people, okay? Ekklesia means people called out of their homes, it's very literally out of their homes to a public place of meeting. A called people or a gathered people. Now, the far more accurate or precise term would be congregation, a group of people that are gathered. But uh, particularly with the Roman Catholic Church and later with the Anglican Church in 1611 with the King James Version, that word ecclesia was, was translated and then remained as church because that was an institutional word. Now, the Roman Catholic Church was very politically powerful. The Anglican Church was very politically powerful. And to maintain their political and religious power and authority, they needed a strong central church. And everything they did was in service to the church, in service to the institution. We're not about institutions. Institutions are man-made. Ecclesia are the people. You've heard that phrase, the church is not the building, it's the people. But for certain groups of people throughout history, it has been necessary for them to emphasize the institution of religion over the subject of religion, which is us and our relationship with God. And so when we see, and in fact, the word church has become synonymous with what we mean to say there. We say, well, I'm going to church. What does that mean? Well, I'm going to join a group of people in worship or in study or in fellowship. We say church interchangeably with congregation, but they're very different concepts historically, and I think it's very important that we maintain an idea that our identity is not wrapped up in an institution because then we become defenders of an institution rather than of the gospel which calls us out into that gathering. So I'm very big on ecclesia. I am very big on this word, and when, and it, when you change it, when you understand the meaning that it's not an institution, it's not a place, it's not a building, it's the people, well, that changes how you look at other verses. Look at, at Matthew when when, um, when Jesus is talking to to Simon and he says, uh, you are no longer Simon, you are Peter, Petros, uh, which means rock. You are, you are the rock, not Dwayne Johnson, but Peter, uh, Simon Peter. He says, you are Petros, Peter, and on this rock, Petra, Um, So he he gives him this nickname, which is a play on words, which was a very Semitic thing to do, very Greek thing to do even in in how he words it. But you are Petros and on this Petra, this rock, I will build my, we would say church because that's what the verse says. But if you take the more literal meaning of ecclesia, which is gathered people, upon this rock, upon this basis, upon you... I will call my people. Well, what did Peter do in Acts chapter 2? He stood before the people, and he called them to repentance and baptism in Christ. When we think of ecclesia as the people, the gathering of people, that becomes an important part of our identity. We're not just members of a club. We are the subject of Christ's own relationship of his the ma- marriage is how it's referred to in Scripture. We are the subject of that, not an institution, not a building, not a church, but a people, a gathered called people, united with one another through Christ and united with God through Christ. And we are the Ecclesia, and I think that's that's beautiful. I wanted to bring that out because we see in that verse that Christ is the head over the church. That's going to keep coming up throughout Ephesians. I want you to start thinking Ecclesia. Christ is the head over us, the body, that is a part of our identity, not as members of a church, but as people who are called to Christ. All right, we're into chapter two now. Here we go. Now, Paul is really bad about run-on sentences. Okay, but I'm going to stop sometimes in mid-sentence for Paul because Paul didn't do English grammar, Okay, so he runs on and on and on, and you'd never want to be in an English class diagramming the book of Romans or anything like that because it's impossible, but uh, I might stop midway, review some of the ideas, and move on, so just be prepared for some stop and go here. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, uh, even as the rest. And so what he says there is, uh, hey, we, we were dead. We were hopeless. We were helpless. We were done for. It was over. The wages of sin is death. Sin separates from God. That's final. That's finality. It's over. It's too late. You're done. And all of us were there. Not just the pagans. Not just us. All of us. Not the Jews. Not the Gentiles. Everybody, Paul says. We were all living according to our own desires and, and, and desires of the flesh. We were dead. We were dead in our transgressions, dead in our trespasses, dead in our sin. And we were all equal under that sentence. But look what he says after that. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Okay. Um, I could, if I don't take care of myself, okay, and I get out of shape, um, some of you are saying, if? And and I am too. Uh, But if I don't take care of myself, my health deteriorates. I develop. I'm severely overweight. I'm diabetic and heart disease. And I drop dead when I'm forty. Okay, getting close. Uh, Drop dead, right? In, in, In middle age. It's too late for me to go on a diet. You know, I can't. I can't. You know, be falling on the floor and say, "Oh, I should walk more." No, you're, it's it's too late. The damage is done. That's how sin was in our life for our soul. It's too late. You 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 died to with sin. You died in sin, not a literal death, but you were dead in that sin. You had no hope, and it's too late. Nothing can be done. But God has this mercy, and He's rich in it. There's an abundance of it. There's plenty to go around, and then some. And He loves us with that kind of love. Paul says, and. Because of that, because of Christ, which was the manifestation of that love, we were made alive again. Now look at what it says, though. Verse 5, even when we were dead, that doesn't mean that we were resuscitated and then we got our life right. Like like me laying there on the floor dead from a heart attack, too late to do anything about it. That's the way we were in our sin. We didn't do anything. God didn't say, okay, now you get these things right and you come up and be on my level then, or stop doing that and then we'll talk. No, it says even while, even when, at the moment when we were dead, at the moment when we were buried in our sin, at the moment where we were drowning, even then, God saved us. God sent Christ and made us alive. There was no prerequisite. We didn't do anything. We didn't have to meet certain criteria. And then he said, no, he offered the salvation through Christ right then where we were. And then what happened? Well, Paul puts here in parentheses, by grace you have been saved. It's by grace. Now, he's, what, what he means there is, it is of no doing of your own. Paul is always faithful in emphasizing that idea. Paul says, even while you were dead, God made you alive through Christ. You didn't do anything. That wasn't your doing. That was God's doing. And what else did he do? Verse 6, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Verse 8, important verse here, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? What a wonderful summation. Mastery. Here I can say a million words to make the point that Paul makes in just just a couple of verses. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. There is nothing you did to earn it, nothing you did to merit it, nothing you did to bring it about. It is only by God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works don't come before you get into Christ. Okay? Uh, That doesn't mean you can't do good works. I mean, it just means the good works don't get you in Christ. The good works are not what saved you. God saved you. God did the saving through Christ. And then he shapes you to be what he wants you to be, to do those good works and to go forth. And we were created by him in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that he himself uh, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by it having uh, by it having put to death the enmity that's a lot. Let's, let's back up and unpack this. He, he's speaking to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, you Gentiles, you're the uncircumcision. That's what they were called. And you were not a part of the circumcision, the Jews. Okay, You weren't the chosen people. You were outside of God's family. You were outside of God's people. And you were separate from Christ. You were kept out of the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers. You you were not a part of this, he's saying. You Gentiles, you weren't a part of this, but now you are. Why? Jesus brought you in. The blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it pulled you in. It adopted you into the family, and now you're part of the family. And so in in talking about identity, my goodness, how big is this passage? How big is this? He's saying, you Gentiles, you you weren't a part of this. You don't have the history these Jews do with God. All right? But Jesus pulled you in. You're not a Gentile anymore. You're a Christian. You're not a Jew anymore. You're a Christian. You're not a pagan anymore. You're a child of God. And by his blood, he brought you near, and he broke down the walls and the barriers so that he could reconcile these two groups. You were separate, one under the law, one not under the law. One lost in sin, the other lost in sin, and he brought them together and made them into one thing, one identity, one unified family. So there's another aspect of identity. You weren't a part of the family, but now you are through Christ. And it wasn't anything that you did to do that. He did it all himself, um, thus establishing peace and must re- and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Um, that word enmity uh, is used also in Scripture to talk about the division in families, the, the animosity um, that is used there to talk about, uh, well, like the descendants of Jacob and Esau and, and, and that sort of thing, or, or uh, the, uh, the way in which mankind and its relationship with, with the earth around it was altered after uh, the garden. Uh, This is a division, this is um, a battle, this is a conflict, okay? And Christ rectified that conflict with Jews and Gentiles by bringing them all into a new identity in Christ. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Um, This uh, would have really... Uh, or th- this will really echo things if you study the book of Romans at all, where Paul is addressing an audience of Jews and Gentiles, and he's saying that you don't, you don't have uh, any separate, um, any separate characteristics anymore. You're not Jews and Gentiles anymore, and it doesn't matter what you are because that's not going to help you. Only Christ. So the identity of the world, the Jew, Gentile, pagan, that goes away when we're in Christ that's the num. I'm, I'm a Christian first. I'm a Christian first before I'm anything else. Uh, our identity is in Christ. Uh, if you're not watching our uh, Romans Bible study series, I strongly encourage you to, w- or, excuse me, our Revelation Bible series. You can watch Romans too. It uh, talks about some of the same things, but in Revelation, uh, in some of those th- those first four or five chapters, we're going to talk a lot about identity, particularly national identity, because that book deals a lot with uh, loyalty to the state and rebellion against the state and identity in Christ. So these, these all kind of go hand in hand. It's almost, it's almost like the Holy Spirit might have known what they were doing, uh, putting it together. So uh, I would encourage you to watch that because we need to remember this. We need to remember this. Our identity is not in a nation, a state, a political party. It's in Jesus Christ. Uh, verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Oh, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. In, in other words, you don't live here. You don't live here. This isn't home, but you're not strangers and aliens anymore because you are now a part of a family. You are of God's household. He says at the end of verse 19, having been built on the foundation of the apostles And prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone that is the thing that makes it work in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit if you want to know who you are if you're struggling with your identity if you feel pulled in every direction to, you know, uh, trying to reconcile these parts of your life. Well, am I, you know, do I identify as, as, as a, a husband, a father, a brother, an American, a Republican, a Democrat, uh, What, or, or even more specifically, maybe I'm Presbyterian, maybe I identify as Episcopalian or Baptist. Or identity, true identity is not found anywhere in this world because we're only here for a little while. What Paul is saying is it's not about Jews and Gentiles anymore. It's not about Romans. It's not about Israelites. It is about Christians. Your identity is in Christ. If you go through this life looking for an identity in a world that is temporary, you will forever be a stranger. You will forever be an alien because you don't belong here. You belong with him, and you find your identity through him. And it's built on a foundation of apostles, And prophets and God's own Word and then Jesus Christ is that cornerstone. He is that building block which holds all things together and that building is now built. It is growing and becoming a holy temple in the Lord and we are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit, the church, the ecclesia, the people, the body of Christ. Paul is making the case that our identity, if we properly identify it, will draw us closer to one another and closer into the good works and obedience of Jesus Christ. But we have to figure out what our identity is, who we are as a church, who we are as people. And in these first two chapters, he says, You are heirs, you are children, you have an inheritance. You have shed away and put away all other identifying characteristics and become only Christians, children of God. And by the power of Christ, you're being built together, put together and assembled to do something wonderful and amazing. And we'll talk more about that in chapter three. Thank you so much for joining.